0: Welcome back to another T-Rex Talk. This is actually podcast episode number 150. And I kind of had a rough idea that we were gonna do something special for episode 150, but uh, something else came up. Today is Tuesday. Uh, It is December 13th. And today I did something that I have never done before, which was to provide uh, witness testimony in a court hearing. Now, the hearing was specifically related to Ballot Measure 114 in Oregon. And I'm going to explain a little bit of what that is. But essentially, there are many ways that legal precedent and laws can be set. One is legislators actually pass the laws. Uh, another is that federal agencies step outside of their jurisdiction to write procedure. That essentially is law. They're not supposed to do that, obviously, but... Uh, They do do that and then you have to be really careful to catch them in the act and tell them not to do that. But another way that you can do this is you can actually have the general public vote on a constitutional amendment or some other measures and just put that on the ballot. And so something that happened in these last midterm elections is somehow a group got ballot measure 114 on the ballot and it does a couple of significant things gun control wise. The first thing that it does is it makes it illegal for people, I mean, essentially impossible, for people to buy firearms without having a special firearm purchasing permit. And then the second thing that it does is imposes a very strict 10-round magazine ban. And this is the kind of bill that actually would not have passed uh, legislatively without some significant opposition, not just from conservatives, but also from people who uh, live in the real world and would say like, hang on a second, you cannot require people purchasing a firearm to have a permit that hasn't been designed, doesn't exist, uh, that requires them to go to a class that nobody is offering because the requirements of the class haven't been written. And then the local constabulatory has to actually keep track of all of these permits and issue them and take people's fingerprints without giving them additional funding and staff. This is the sort of thing that would actually happen in a conversation about a bill in the Oregon legislature, and amendments would be offered, and the bill's language would be changed, and so that it would at least, theoretically, be a thing that could be achieved. But because it got put onto the ballot in like a really raw form, uh, and it goes into effect in December 8th, which if you're checking on your calendar was, you know, in the past, a bunch of people actually stood up and said, hang on a second, this ballot initiative 114 is actually unconstitutional and impossible. Nobody is actually prepared to issue this permit. Nobody has actually figured out what it looks like. Nobody has told gun stores how to verify whether people actually have it. No one has created the classes that are required to take before you get it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so a temporary stay or injunction was placed on that part of the bill or that part of the measure. Actually, uh, lose track of what all of these different things are called in different states so bear with me that actually makes you wonder did the people who wrote this particular ballot initiative assume that the uh, permitting process would just suddenly coalesce out of thin air that there would just suddenly be a permit and a process there would be classes that you could go to police officers have enough time on their plates to fingerprint everybody that wants to buy guns and it would just somehow magically happen by December 8th because they have no clue how slow government actually works? Or uh, did they actually want a completely impossible non-existent process to be a requirement so that no guns could be sold? Uh, I honestly don't know. I have the same question about California's micro-stamping law that requires that a completely impractical, physically impossible mechanical process happen in order for a gun to be deemed not unsafe. Uh, Not safe, of course, but not unsafe. Actually, I just thought of another kind of a weird thing. So the micro-stamping process Uh, has been shown to work in laboratory conditions if you look at more than 10 cartridges with an electron microscope. So you actually need to pick up more than 10 cartridges because you can't read the number on any one of them. But if you have 10 of them, you can kind of piece together the whole serial number that's been stamped on there. So when you think about it, California's 10-round magazine restriction actually stops micro-stamping from working. If you actually want micro-stamping to identify cartridges, uh, connect them to a specific weapon, they need to be encouraging people to shoot a lot more bullets. They need to get rid of that magazine ban. Now, back to Oregon and Measure 114. The second part of the measure is the magazine restriction. And at its face, it looks like a very similar uh, magazine capacity restriction that other states have, including California, which says a maximum magazine capacity of 10 rounds. However, it goes far beyond what California and other states do, because it says magazines also may not have a removable base plate. Because if the magazine has a removable base plate, you could put a magazine extension on it. So that means a 10 round magazine could receive a five round base plate and now it's 15 rounds. So you could really only sell a five round magazine if it has a removable base plate. And it talks about how you can also not sell any magazines which are readily convertible to hold more rounds. And the only way that the California style magazine ban uh, language actually works is it doesn't go into quite this level of detail so that you can render a magazine California legal in a really simple way, which is, let's be honest, pretty easy to overcome because it is pretty easy to modify plastic things. Box magazines are not that complicated. Turning them into boxes that can hold more things is relatively easy. And putting this readily convertible test on there is far more restrictive than possibly even the writers of ballot measure 114 actually intended or perhaps not we actually don't know uh, what they were intending uh when they wrote this language i mean the situation with 114 in oregon now is pretty dire there's a whole lot of gun companies and wholesalers and manufacturers that will not ship to oregon because their magazines are almost certainly (laughs) illegal One of the other men that spoke up at this trial is a guy that owns a gun store. He cannot buy anything that comes with a magazine. There's not very many firearms that you can actually purchase uh, from the manufacturer that does not include at least one magazine. And so there's just not a whole lot of inventory that he can get in at the moment. There's just not a whole lot of stuff that he can sell in his business. There's just not a whole lot of business that he can do under this existing law. It even goes so far as to say that if you tape two magazines together, you are in violation of this particular ballot measure. And it even goes further than that. If you have the components to readily convert a magazine or do things, this is a problem. So theoretically, if you own two Oregon legal magazines and a roll of tape, you are in violation of this new law. And again, let's not forget the fact that there are very, very few Oregon legal magazines at this point, because almost every magazine that exists inside of the modern firearm world does indeed have a removable base plate. And that's really important, not just for manufacture. It makes manufacturing that magazine way easier. It's also really important for maintenance and magazines do, in fact, need maintenance. So a number of organizations, Gun Owners of America, Firearm Policy Coalition, and others have sued the state of Oregon so that there can actually be a stronger injunction against different parts of this law, of this bill, of this ballot measure, whatever it is uh, actually called. And different lawsuits have focused on different parts of the language. So a few days ago, uh, GONE owners of America, they were involved in this one particular lawsuit that was focused mostly on the language surrounding uh, the magazine ban or magazine capacity restrictions. And uh, they contacted me and asked if I would present testimony explaining uh, essentially some of the stuff that is in the um, Why Everyone Needs an AR-15 video, explaining several things about how firearm technology evolves uh, and is developed, how magazine capacities grow, and uh, the way that uh, the Bruin decision, which we've talked about several times in this podcast, goes, you need to find laws that existed at the time of the founding that have a similar intent to the laws that you have now. So, Ideally, you would find uh, in the 1700s, about the same time that the founders are uh, writing the Constitution and passing the Bill of Rights, you would find laws limiting the magazine capacity of rifles or the amount of ammunition that people can carry. And then you can prove that the founders, when they wrote the Second Amendment saying the rights shall not be infringed, did say that it was okay to limit the amount of bullets that a person has on them. That doesn't actually violate the Second Amendment because the founders were already thinking that that was okay. Now, as you may guess, if you go back to the 1700s and you look at uh, all the laws that were on the books regarding firearms, there aren't any limitations on Magazine capacity. Now, part of the reason for this is there weren't a whole lot of repeating rifles uh, at the time, but there definitely were some, and there definitely were people planning to make repeating rifles. And I'm not going to get super uh, into the weeds there. Uh, That's a whole nother podcast. But every time you do see ammunition mentioned, Uh, with numbers attached, it is not a limit, it is a minimum. The best example of this is the Militia Act of 1792, the second Militia Act uh, more specifically. It specifies that everybody in the militia must have a box that can carry no less than 24 cartridges. So the limit is nothing. The minimum is 24. Unless you're a rifleman, in that case, you must carry enough ammunition uh, for 20 shots. Uh, A certain amount of powder and 20 rifle balls. The only limitations that i can find in that particular historical era are inside of towns individual townships would often have limits on the amount of gunpowder that you could store within the town itself so obviously this is a safety consideration uh, of not blowing up the town but the town isn't trying to stop the private ownership of gunpowder or even the private stockpiling of gunpowder because towns would often build town magazines, really big fortified structures out of bricks and stone to better facilitate the people living in the town being able to stockpile gunpowder in a safer and more convenient way. So that's a good example of a law that uh, is sort of an exception that proves the rule. And if you look at the actual intent behind it, it does the opposite of limiting the ammunition that a person can have or own or keep. So in my non-legal opinion, the way that you properly apply the Bruin decision is to look back into history to see if there are any restrictions, uh, any limitations, any qualifications to the Second Amendment that existed at the time. Those are the only ones that you can do. But my understanding is that the state of Oregon, and this is a combination of uh, different people involved in this law, the people who put it together, Uh, various people who work for the state as uh, attorneys, uh, some judges, it kind of goes the other way. They would like to see some proof that there were high capacity firearms in Oregon in use. That would be a way to prove that Oregonians have always had this right. And I think that is a little backward, but nevertheless, uh, I agreed to come along. And fortunately, I uh, was able to provide this testimony remotely because flying to Oregon right now, right after Black Friday, Uh, didn't feel like the most fun thing that I could be doing. I don't want to get too much into the specific questions or the specific testimony, uh, but I will say that... (laughs) It's not like in the movies. In the movies, uh, when the witness is being cross-examined and he says something really dumb, the audience gasps and there's a musical cue that lets him know that he said something really dumb that just cost him the entire case. Uh, When you are doing this in real life, you don't have those kind of cues. And when (laughs) you're remote, it's even worse. Uh, I could see the judge on the camera feed uh, that I was looking at, but I could not see anyone who was asking me any questions. So I didn't even really have... Body language, so the whole time i 'm answering questions from both sides and haven 't got a clue <laughs> how it 's going it wasn 't until after everything was done that uh, I was actually able to hear from uh, the lawyers for gun North America, and they said that it was it was indeed helpful which is, which is great that was you know obviously what I was going for, but there was a huge amount of time that was spent. By both sides trying to establish this precedent that there were, in fact, multi-shot-capable firearms in the time that Oregon was founded, that Oregon uh, became a state in 1859. And it's kind of frustrating because there is a fantastic multi-shot firearm that was released in 1960, and that is, of course, the Henry Rifle. The Henry Rifle is a very powerful and capable rifle bought by civilians used in combat. And it has a magazine capacity of 15 bullets plus one in the chamber, well above the 10 round magazine capacity that is being suggested in the current law. So the question is, is that completely off the table because it was released in 1960 instead of in 1959? Well, fortunately, there are some predecessors to the Henry rifle. And this was really, uh, actually fun to get to research some of these. So the Henry rifle, obviously the brainchild of Mr. Henry. But before he worked on it, Mr. Henry worked on something called the Volcanic Rifle. And he was working with uh, Mr. Wesson, and he was working with a Mr. Winchester. And they were working on the Volcanic as kind of an iteration on top of the Jennings Rifle. And the Jennings Rifle is something that uh, a gentleman named Mr. Jennings was working on with a man named Mr. Smith. Uh, Mr. Smith and Mr. Wesson uh, became friends... Uh, during the Volcanic Project, and they went on to start their own firearms company, by the way. But the Jennings rifle uh, is actually based on some patents from an inventor named Hunt. So there are predecessors of this rifle that exist. Now, they're not commercial slam dunks. They're not remarkably robust products that are purchased by the United States federal military or by that many civilians. But these are rifles that are proofs of concept. These are rifles that are made as commercial products regardless of how successful they are. And it's clear that they inspired not only the Henry rifle and then later the Winchester rifle, but very large firearm companies, Smith & Wesson, Winchester, etc. So even if I think that it doesn't actually make sense to have to prove that high capacity repeating firearms actually existed in the public sphere at the founding of Oregon as a state, there still is really good historical precedent for it which is why the opposition wanted to place a whole bunch of these very specific caveats, uh, because I think that the message is ultimately extremely clear. It is clear that in the past, nobody is talking about magazine uh, restrictions. Nobody is trying to limit the amount of cartridges that you have in a box, whether it is a box attached to the rifle or a box that uh, hangs from a strap on your shoulder. No one is talking about limiting the amount of bullets that a firearm can shoot. And everybody is trying to develop firearms that shoot more bullets. In fact, I've done a little bit of historical research and I can't find anybody talking about magazine restrictions until the year 1989. And it was actually, um, it was actually Mr. Ruger that first threw the idea out there. And then in 1993, a magazine capacity limitation was in fact part of the 1993 assault weapons ban. I think this is why uh, the opposition is working so hard to reframe the question, not is there any historical precedent for limitations, but are there any historical precedents for specific large-capacity magazines (laughs) of the time? Because that is a trickier question to ask. I also read a ton of legal documents specifically related to the case, and I don't want to get too terribly deep into those, except that... Ryan Bussey showed up. He actually provided uh, not testimony for the day of the hearing that I was providing testimony, but he provided some written materials that were part of the court record. And one of his points was that magazine bans are okay. Uh, They don't actually change the function of the weapon as intended. And depending on how exactly you parse that sentence, I would say that he is correct. Take for example, my minivan. Uh, I have a Toyota Sienna minivan with a 15-gallon gas tank. If that 15-gallon gas tank were replaced by a one-gallon gas tank, in many senses, the vehicle would continue to function as intended. The engine would start, it would warm up the oil, the alternator would recharge the battery, Um, but I would only be able to drive 20 miles, which means that the vehicle wouldn't actually function as it was intended. When that vehicle was designed by Toyota, one of the design constraints, one of the design goals, one of the main value propositions for the customer is a minivan that can travel 300 miles on a tank of gas. And so a smaller gas tank does, in fact, change the vehicle so that it no longer functions as intended. And while we're on the subject of magazine bans, I want to close with this thought. This thought has nothing to do with historical precedent. Uh, It has nothing to do with a nitty-gritty of specific legal requirements or the ways that laws are enacted or debated, but just the purpose of larger capacity magazines in general. If you go back and you watch that Air 15 video on YouTube and you see the development of firearms over time, everybody is trying to improve the effectiveness of a firearm. That means improving the accuracy. That means improving the reliability. And that means improving the firepower of the rifle. Now, sometimes people are improving the actual speed, of the projectile, or the size of the projectile that it shoots. But at a certain point, the way that you improve the firepower of the device is allowing it to fire multiple shots, and that desire comes really, really, really early on there are craftsmen who build multi-shot flintlocks very early on. There's a 16-shot wheel lock that is made by artisans. It's not something that can be put into production uh, with machining tools that they had at the time, but there are proofs of concept that show not only that these things are mechanically possible, but that people are wanting to build these things. And when you think about magazine capacity and what the magazine limitations that are trying to be legislated at this point, the goal is to limit mass shootings. And the idea is that if we could just limit the number of bullets that are in legal magazines, we're gonna limit the amount of casualties in mass shootings, which is a little bit like saying, uh, another car analogy, of course, since drunk drivers break lots of traffic laws and kill lots of people, let's make the speed limit 20 miles an hour lower for everyone. I think you can see the problem with that. Most people don't actually expect mass shooters to obey the firearm laws that uh, are supposed to constrain them. But even if they did, let's think about this other fact that is really, really important. Large magazines disproportionately benefit defenders, the weak, uh, the disabled, the injured, those people who are actually under attack. Standard capacity magazines, which hold lots and lots of bullets, actually offer fewer advantages to the aggressors, Uh, you know, the people who are pre-planning their attack. They have time to prepare their equipment, and they have the element of surprise. It is those people who are by definition weaker or under attack and defending, those are the people who really benefit from the large magazines, and the people who are going to follow these really draconian uh, mag capacity restrictions are, by definition, the most scrupulously lawful people uh, who are not the ones uh, causing the shootings in the first place. That's where I'm going to end uh, this particular podcast. There's a million more rabbit trails to follow, uh, a million more legal uh, arguments that could be teased and experimented with and researched uh, and thrown at the wall to see if they procedurally stick, but. That is, I believe, really the core principle that people should be remembering when they discuss this issue. It is ultimately a question about rights and uh, responsibilities. But I want to thank Rob and I want to thank Tony, the guys that actually looped me in Um, so that I had this opportunity to do a thing that was incredibly unenjoyable at the time, but I think was uh, necessary and hopefully very helpful. So I want to encourage you guys to keep a close eye on the different uh, laws that are currently being tested. I want you to keep an eye on how those tests go. Um, And I do want you to also uh, keep up with some of, some of the arguments that are being used by both sides, because the opportunity for you to stand up in your own communities, uh, in your own towns or your own states and uh, defend rights and oppose some of these poor ideas, I think that's really necessary. So pay close attention to the stuff that is going on because even the stuff way out in Oregon sets a precedent both for or against stuff that people are going to try to do in your own home state. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for passing around these podcasts. Uh, so that guys who are working on some of these cases <laughs> know to call me and ask me to do stuff uh, that I hate. I, I really appreciated you guys. <laughs> but in all honesty, uh, it was not that bad. I was pleased to do it. I just hoped that it was going to be a little bit more like the end of my cousin Vinny. That's all.